Thank you, Hannah and Parker and Catherine for leading us so beautifully in worship this morning. Take out your Bibles. We'll be looking at Matthew 18 as well as for just a moment, Genesis chapter 4. I'll show you how those two are related. So if you turn now and have a place there at Matthew 18 and also in Genesis chapter 4. We all have enemies in our life, those who've wronged us, belittled us, hurt us, abandoned us. Why, if I were to mention your nemesis name this morning, why, even that name would make you angry. Or the very thought of her can make your skin crawl. Much of what we keep stored in boxes is absolutely worthless to anybody but ourselves, like old ticket stubs or blackened corsages or graduation programs. They have absolutely no value at the garage sale, but we, we keep boxes of them. We're collecting, we're preserving memories of those important occasions in our life that we don't ever, ever want to forget. They're happy memories and sad memories, and maybe even a bitter memory or two. We remember angry words that are spoken. We remember the relative who didn't show up for the wedding. We remember the daughter-in-law who told us to butt out. We keep those mental storage boxes, kind of like our cardboard storage boxes. They're in our mind, and from time to time, we go back and we get out these old hurts and wounds, and we relive the pain all over again. And yet in Isaiah 43, 25, God said to his people, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, and for my own sake, I remember your sins no more. All those terrible things that we have done, God cancels them. He wipes them out. He doesn't stuff them away in a, a drawer just in case he wants to jog his memory to be hurt by us again. He obliterates them. He chooses not to remember them anymore. Jesus today is going to ask you to do the hardest thing that Jesus has ever asked you to do. To be sure, Jesus has asked some hard things before, has he not? To the rich young ruler, he says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Or to all disciples, he says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross daily and come after me. Or he even says to Simon Peter, come on, get out of the boat. I want you to tread the waves, to walk on the water with me. Oh, no doubt about it. Jesus asked his disciples some very hard things, but this morning he asked you the hardest thing when in Luke 6 he says, I say to you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Could Jesus possibly ask you any harder thing to do this morning than to actually love your enemies and do good to those 
who do wrong to you. The word of God for today is that we are to be as gracious to our enemies as God is to us. In Matthew 18, 21, our text read this morning, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often when my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Up to seven times, he asked. Now, Jewish rabbis taught, and perhaps Peter had learned, that if a man sins once, twice, or even three times against you, then you are obligated by God to forgive him. But if somebody sins against you a fourth time, there is no obligation to forgive. Well, think about the book of Amos. Amos 1 goes on. Amos 2, several times. For three transgression and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So Peter thinks he's being really more like Jesus here. The Jews had taught three forgiveness. On the fourth time, no forgiveness. And so when he comes up to Jesus and says, man, I'm catching on to this grace message of yours. And so here's my question. How about this? Not three, but what about, what if I forgive my brother seven times? Is that good, Jesus? Am I catching on? Am I learning about grace? If I forgive seven times, have I learned what you're trying to teach me? Peter's trying to be good. But forgiveness, that's the gospel forgiveness, knows no boundaries. Jesus replies in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Your translation, like mine, may say 70 times seven, but really 77 is a more accurate translation. Turn back to Genesis chapter 4. I'll show you where this idea comes from. Genesis 4 and verse 22. It's one of those ancient pieces of poetry recorded, and yet it's not a story that we know very well. As for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. There it is. There's your seventy-sevenfold. In fact, if you were to look at the Old Testament in Greek, the Septuagint, the Greek construction is exactly the same in Genesis 4 as it is in Matthew 18, and therefore I'm certain it is best translated 77 times. Imagine the Genesis setting like this. Well, Zillah has a child, we'll just call him Tubal, not to confuse him with the other Cain. Zillah has a child, we'll call him Tubal. He's a maker of weapons. He was able to hammer out the bronze and the iron. He's just made a crude sword, and his father Lamech is proud. He feels invincible, the sword. He picks it up, he begins to swing it, and he has a captive audience like most husbands of his wife, in this case his wives, and they have to listen to him as he says, if God will see to it that anyone who harms Cain 
will be avenged seven times. Well, I'm, I'm bigger and badder than God with my sword. If anyone does anything to me, it's not seven times, but I will get revenge 77 times. You see what Jesus did? The whole point is Jesus took a passage from the Old Testament, which is Lamech's song of unlimited revenge, and he turns it into a message of boundless forgiveness. This early poem about payback becomes a parable about pardoning. Jesus takes the poem that is about getting back to your enemy 77 times, and he makes it about limitless grace and forgiveness. Jesus calls you to the stage. He's about to give us a parable. It's in Act 1 and in Act 2. Watch as the characters walk across the stage and discover who you are in the story. Matthew 18, 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he begun to settle them, there was one who owed him 10,000 talents. It was brought to him, and since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him that debt. Act 1. It starts out with a story about the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew's gospel is a very Jewish gospel, and so when the other gospel writers might say rightly the kingdom of God, he didn't want to abuse the name of God, so he substitutes heaven. You see that? The kingdom of heaven is like this. There's a king who wants to settle accounts. Now, in these stories of old, the king is almost always God. We're familiar with that settling day. You know the day, April the 15th. Right here it is. It's April the 15th. It's time to settle up. It's time to pay up or be punished. And there's one particular man who owes 10,000 talents. I don't know how to make you understand the enormity of this debt. Maybe this will do it. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said the taxes of Judea, Idumea, Samaria, Galilee, and Perea, the taxes of all those geographical areas combined was 800 talents. And this one guy owes 10,000 talents. Well, let's look at it another way. One day's wage is a denarius. One talent is 6,000 denarii. I I've done the math. This individual owed 60 million denarii or 60 million days of work. If he didn't work on the Sabbath, then he would need 5,476.9 lifetimes of work, a whole lifetime of work to pay it back, 5,776.9 lifetimes. So let me translate this way. This guy owns, owes zillions of dollars. How do you get in that much debt? 
I don't know. Maybe he was way up. Maybe he was in charge of collecting taxes for something like the Persian Empire. I don't know, but his debt was unfathomable. The first principle of the gospel is this. This story has the principles of the gospel. We are in deep debt to God. Principle number one. We all, by our transgressions, by our sins, we are in deep debt to God. The second truth of the gospel in this story is this. Our debt is so deep that we cannot repay it. We owe zillions of dollars through our transgressions. We owe a debt to God. Our debt is so large we cannot pay it. But look at verse 25. But since he did not have means to repay it. Now, if you know the zillions, now you're just laughing. Since he did not have means to repay it. Well, yeah, he couldn't repay it. Zillions of dollars. He did not have the means, nor would he ever have the means. So the king says, sell this fella, sell his wife, sell his kids, sell his house, sell it all, throw him in prison, and let's try to pay back this debt. Well, Jewish law forbade the sale of a wife and children to settle a debt. Of course, Jesus knows that. He's showing the absurdity of the story. And even if you sold the guy, his wife, and his children in his house, it would be nothing but a drop in the bucket towards the zillions of dollars that he owed. And so the man began to beg, verse 26, just give me more time. Just give me more time. I don't know how, but I'll pay it all back. Time, obviously, was not the answer on this debt. He asked for more time, and the king gives him immeasurably more. He asked for patience, a chance to repay, and the king gives him a pardon. We owe God a debt. The debt is so large, we could never repay it. And thirdly, we receive the gracious forgiveness from the king. We owe a debt. It's so big we can't pay it. And God, the Father, the King, gives us a pardon. Verse 27 must surely be amongst the most beautiful of all verses in the New Testament. But the Lord had compassion on the slave and just canceled the debt. He forgave him all that debt. What a wonderful verse. You are forgiven. However enormously cruels of in, kings of antiquity could be, they could also be extravagantly generous. The loan is not extended. The loan is canceled, paid in full. That was Act 1, Act 2. Sometimes the worst word in the Bible is the word but. The adversative conjunction. Whenever you see the but, the story changes course. Does it not? Look at verse 28. Look what happens here. But... 
that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, began to, to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he could pay back all that was owed. How sour does the story turn? The one who's just been forgiven the zillions of dollars finds one who owes him a hundred denarii, three and a half months of wages, a payable debt to be sure. Most of us owe, myself included, more than three and a half months of our wages, do we not? This guy was in good financial shape. That's all that he owed. And he didn't have the money right then. He said, give me a little time and I'll repay you. But the slave who had been forgiven, the zillions of dollars of debt, he begins to choke him and says, nothing doing. You are going to prison. I want you to notice the comparison. Look at verse 26. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. That's a zillion-dollar debtor to the king. Now look at verse 29. So his fellow slave fell down, began to treat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Wouldn't being forgiven the zillion dollars produce patience against all future debtors and bring forth forgiveness? Could he not hear his own voice? Had he not fallen at the feet of the king and said, just give me more time and I'll repay you? And time wasn't even his answer? When, when his fellow underling, a slave under him, falls down and says, I, I beg you, I pray, give me more time. How could he not hear those very words uttered just moments earlier from his own lips to the king? How does he miss that? How does he miss that this fellow is asking for no more than he has asked? The way you want the story to end is the one who's been forgiven the zillion dollars in debt, the 10,000 talents that he says to the one, the underling, who owes him all the less. As I have been forgiven, I forgive you. As I have been forgiven, I forgive you. That's the way we want the story to end. But that's not the way the story ends, is it? 10,000 10, talents versus... A few months' wages. This is the fourth principle of the gospel. Our guilt before God is unendingly greater than any person's guilt before us. Our guilt before God is unendingly greater than anyone else's guilt before us. The fifth principle of the gospel is this. The essence of what I want you to see this morning. As God forgives us, we are to forgive each other. As God forgives us, we are to forgive each other. Do you not remember our Lord's Prayer and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? 
And how the Lord's Prayer ends in Matthew 6, maybe you've forgotten that part because we don't often recite it. For if you do not forgive other people their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your sins. If you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your sins. Or Matthew 7. With the measure that you measure out to others mercy and judgment, you yourselves will be measured. I read this story and the slave who's forgiven the zillions of dollars, I don't like him. I read that story and I say, man, you are a bad guy. You are a wretch. You are horrible. How could someone like you not get it? How could you miss it that big? And that's exactly what Jesus wants you to do when you hear the story. And then he turns and you realize, I'm that guy. You just condemned yourself. God has forgiven you your sins. And yet we hold others' feet to the fire in regard to the wrong that they do us. We are the first servant. Jesus asks you a hard thing today. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For some of us, it'd be easier if he asked us to walk on water than to let go of that hurt and that sin. Now, I'm not asking you to put yourself in a position to be hurt again. I'm not asking you to put yourself in a position to be abused again. I'm not asking you to do that. But I am asking you in your heart to let go of that wrong against you, even as a father lets go of your wrong against him. Someone might ask, well, if he doesn't repent, do I have to forgive him? That's the wrong question. If I don't forgive, can he repent? That's the right question. You see how the question's upside down? Well, well if you don't get it, let, let me put it this way. Jesus is dying on the cross, and the words of our Savior on the cross are, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, I ask you, at that point in the Passion narrative, who had repented? Had Pilate said, man, I was all wrong. No. Had the Roman soldiers said at that moment, you know, we've crucified the wrong guy. No. Had the disciples who were cowardly and ran, had they asked for forgiveness? Had they repented? No. Had the mobs? No. Had the high priest or the Sanhedrin? No. No one had said they were wrong or they were sorry. And before they ever had that thought, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. It's not about their asking for it. It's about your doing it, whether they ask or not. A few years ago, a nationwide survey was taken, asked what word, words, phrase would you most likely, most want to hear? The first words that people most long to hear are predictable. I love you. The second set of words or phrase that people most like to hear are, you're forgiven. I love you, God's unconditional love. You are forgiven, God's merited grace. By the way, the third is supper's ready, supper's ready. <laughs> God's unsurpassed invitation. God's unsurpassed 
invitation. When you choose to hold on to it, you become the victim all over again. The deed of your enemy locks you in the past with hate and bitterness, and it doesn't hurt him or her a bit, but it destroys you on the inside. It was September the 28th. I did a funeral for Lucille Mitchell. Often I'll ask family members, they'll bring the Bible and say, this was Lucille's Bible, if you'd like to see. And, and I like that because you can look through there and you can see what passages they underline three or four times, a, a favorite verse. You might see sermon notes inside of there. You might see a poem or a hymn they've stuck in there. You can kind of tell what's important to somebody by looking through their well-worn Bible. Well, as I opened up Lucille Mitchell's Bible, I saw written right there in the front, right when you open it, right there on the blank page, a good forgetter is a blessing. A good forgetter is a blessing. So I asked her husband, Roy, who's a bricklayer, and I asked her daughters, Darlena, Sharon, Sandra, and Kim, well, why did Lucille write that? What does it mean a good forgetter is a blessing? Lucille came to church in a wheelchair She'd been married to Roy for 64 years. Roy said the key to being married for six and a half decades were two words, yes and darling, yes and darling, words that Lucille taught him early in their marriage. The first time that Roy ever laid eyes on Lucille, he did not even know her name. He shouted out loud, I'm going to marry that girl right there. And he did. They eloped to the big city of Plainview, Texas. Her mama on the sly gave her all the money she had saved, $5. Now, can I just testify, weddings are not $5 anymore. That's just a, <laughs> that's just a little personal aside. $5, they went to Plainview, Texas, and they got married. Soon, Roy was called into the army, and he told me he wrote a letter back to Lucille every single day. Well, Roy, what did you write to Lucille? He said, every day I wrote, I love you. Every day he sent a letter said, I love you. They sat right over here in a wheelchair. What does it mean, Roy? Why did Lucille write that? That's a strange thing to write in your Bible. I've never opened, I've opened hundreds of Bibles. Nobody's ever written in front of their Bible. A good forgetter is a blessing. What does that mean? Four daughters, Darlena, Sharon, Sandra, and Kim, they also had a son by the name of Gary. When Gary was 35 years of age, he was in a car at a red light on the frontage road of Interstate 10 in Houston. A man came up behind him with a 20-gauge pump shotgun and shot him dead in the back of the head. December the 19th. You can go look it up in the paper, Houston paper, December the 19th, 1985. I went back and read all the newspaper articles preparing for the funeral, and to make matters worse, the murderer walked away. The jury said not guilty. The prosecutor, Karen Morris, said the jury's verdict was absolutely ludicrous. Can you imagine how Roy and Lucille felt? Not only had their boy been murdered, but the murderer had walked away scot-free. Life for their son had ended, and life for the murderer went on, continued as if things were the same. What father in here 
wouldn't be worth his weight if he didn't get angry and pick up the gun and be ready to go and make things right for his son. If the courts won't take care of it, I tried it the right way, and now I'm going to do it my way. All of that anger was boiling over inside of Roy's body when well, a fellow church member, Bill Sherwood, walked in. They really didn't know each other very well before that, and, and Roy was ready with rage. And Bill said, Roy, you can't do this. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. This man has gotten away with nothing. There is another court. There is another day where justice will be done. And that day, Lucille Mitchell got up, walked over to her Bible, and opened it up and wrote those powerful words, a good forgetter is a blessing. Roy and Lucille lived their life in love and grace. They refused to let revenge and rage eat up their family. I asked Roy, Roy, who killed your son? He looked at me and said, I do not know the man's name. If he were to come in here and sit down beside you, Pastor, I would not recognize him because I have chosen to forget. I have chosen to forget. Who do you need to forget today? Who do you need to forgive today? Let us pray. Oh God, what a powerful story that captures all of the essence of the gospel. That we owe an enormous debt. We can't pay the debt. God the Father pardons. And we walk away forgiving our brothers and sisters. Maybe there's someone here this morning who feels that weight of divine debt. They, they feel that weight of their sins on their shoulders. And today would be his day or her day to come and say, I want to have the Lord's grace. I, I am the debtor. I owe more than I can ever repay. And let this be the day when the blood of Jesus has paid for my sins. I want to hear those words, you are forgiven. For some of you, this is that day. Maybe there are others who want to come and be a part of this church that preaches the full gospel of the grace of God without minimizing sin and hold up the powerful story of the cross. In the name of Jesus, we pray.